episode 1080, Kooky Christmas, Christmas in Atlantis. Welcome to the Sci-Fi Christian, bringing you theology at warp speed. I'm Ed Anderson. I'm Ben Bono. We're back for the conclusion of this year's kooky Christmas. Man, it's been a great kooky Christmas. I'm so excited for this episode. I don't know what it's about, but you teased it so well last week. I'm very excited. Although, now that you said the title, I'm starting to have some flashbacks to when you were formulating what was coming up this season. Yeah, so can I can I give you... A little bit more of a tease. Yeah. So this is what I sent to you in the Rainies last night. I said, if successful, this episode will change how you view experts, myth, human history, and Genesis. Mm-hmm. I think it will. I think it will. Uh, I, I'm actually very, very excited for this one. So a little bit of background on it and and maybe starting to reference the title is a while back on our Patreon feed, I had asked our Patreon subscribers, what do you want to hear for our kooky Christmas? Could I just plug Patreon real quick? You, you absolutely can. can. If you're not on Patreon, you can go to patreon.com forward slash the sci-fi Christian where we have, I, do, I we just found it's out, so we, good. we weren't paying attention to this, but we're about to do our fifth year of additional episodes. So we've got the uncensored feed, which is Ben's favorite, the extra feed, which is like the main feed, but extra but more, yeah. and more and not what's here we've we've done some sports stuff less now but yeah, yeah we, less, we so much good stuff. we've got stuff matt or sorry stuff ben doesn't like which is on a little bit of a hiatus yeah. <laughs> oh skinny fat christians yeah we are weight loss inspiration oh podcast. And, and i should say happy new year this is our first episode of season 13 of the sci-fi christian uh, happy new year all right so, we'll so yeah i mean patreon one month for the lowest tier gonna cost you three bucks just try it what do you have to lose you've got three bucks santa was good to you you got three bucks. If you don't have three bucks, sell some of your Christmas crap. You don't need it. You don't need that stuff. Pawn it. Pawn it. You got a new microwave for Christmas? Pawn that crap. What do you think about all my eBay boxes everywhere? Yeah, you sell. Do what Matt's doing. Sell it. Just, <laughs> sell you know, things. And just then give around. the money to us. Take your kids' toys to sell them, which I've literally done and <laughs> exactly. made some money. Anyway, I asked our, our Patreon subscribers, what do you guys want to hear for kooky Christmas? Because I think that... You know, I, I don't do a good job responding to people, even on Patreon, but I try and do better being interactive there. Yeah. Uh, and Patreon subscribers are now saying, that's better? Like, yes, it's better than it what is the... Better. It is better. It's not good, but it's better. And so they had a lot of good ideas, some of which I'm not going to talk about because uh, we have future kooky Christmases ahead of us. I have a lot of good ideas there. I actually, I won't say it, but I made a, a request to you off the air. Yeah. I'm hoping maybe you'd think of doing it for Valentine's Day. Uh, no, I know what kooky cupid uh, is. Rats. Because my daughter asked me about a subject, and I, I and knew you, you know what kooky cupid is because I sent you the book. Anyway, yeah. don't talk about that because I, I, right. I like to tease. But one of the most popular choices from the Patreon feed was Atlantis. And I, I thought about that for a second. I thought to myself initially, I don't know if there's a ton to do with Atlantis. We've talked about it a little bit before. You know, there's some interesting things there. And then... It clicked for me. What if I broaden this out a little bit and I expanded it to the, the concept of lost civilizations in general? And in particular, it reminded me of a book that I've been wanting to read for a number of years now, uh, Fingerprints of the Gods by Graham Hancock, in which he talks about exactly that. So Graham Hancock, has uh, he's an investigative journalist who has done a lot of work into possible evidence 
for an advanced civilization. Uh, if you have Netflix, he just uh, released an eight-episode documentary called Ancient Apocalypse. That's also going to be one of my main sources on this episode. It's fantastic. And I'll, I'll just lay my cards on the table up front. I think he's on to something, you know? And we could go through every piece of his evidence. Well, what about this? What about that? Yeah, uh, I, I'm sure there, there, and I'm not, there, there's stuff in his book that I wouldn't agree with that I think is shakier, you know, some that's less convincing than others. But on the whole, do I think that there is very compelling evidence for an advanced civilization? And we'll give a little bit more color to what we mean and don't mean by advanced in just a little bit. An advanced civilization that existed, say, 10 to 12,000 years ago, you know, before recorded history. Yes, I do. Yes, I do. And for many of you out there, so do you. You just don't know it yet. All right. So let's talk about this a little bit here. And I promise that the Atlantis thing, we will talk about Atlantis in here. It's going to take a while to get back to it. So if it feels like, well, we're talking a lot about Egypt. Where's Atlantis? Just hang on. <laughs> we're going to get to Atlantis. Uh, if we talk about the common understanding of the ancient past, it looks something like this. Ho Homo sapiens begin to emerge about 300,000 years ago. Again, like I said last week, if you're a young Earth creationist, you, you might not like these two episodes, but just hang in there. You're going to be okay. Uh, about 10,000 BC, agriculture begins to emerge, and this is kind of the beginning of what we consider to be modern history. You know, the emergence of agriculture allows for humanity to emerge out of its hunter-gatherer state, settle down, and begin the all-important process of civilization. So agriculture begins about 10,000 BC. Keep that date in mind. It's going to come up a lot tonight. About 3,000 BC, so about 5,000 years ago at this point, this is when Ancient uh, civilizations like the Egyptians begin to emerge, and they start to build these giant megalithic structures like the pyramids being one. But, of course, we have all sorts of similar structures to that all over the world, you know, whether it be the Aztec pyramids, Incan structures, talk about those as well. And, of course, from there, the rest is history. So it's a fairly straightforward story. It makes sense that, you know, uh, there's going to be um, a, a point back where, yes, you might have human-ish creatures, but there's not anything in the way of recorded history. And so it makes sense that history is going to have a beginning and prehistory exists before that. So the question becomes then, what reason, if any, is there to dissent from that view? Or maybe even a broader question would be, if that's what the experts are saying, outside of the sheer entertainment of kooky Christmas that we all derive, why even spend time questioning it? And I actually want to start there. I want to talk a little bit about experts. And if you are a Patreon subscriber and you've you've listened to some of our material on Dune, you're one step ahead of the game here. And that's another benefit of, of Patreon is that you're going to get some, you know, we flesh out some of the ideas more. 
I, I like how you're really selling it this way. It's like kicking out the new year. Let's just see what we can oh, do. Oh, yeah. 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 No, we're, it's, we're trying it's, to, we need some new heads, headphones. We no. <laughs> <laughs> These things are like 15 the, bucks a piece, the guys. Soundboard. Yeah, we can afford. We afford. need five of you to, to subscribe so Matt can have working headphones. I literally have it <laughs> off my ear because it's bothering me too. It's, yeah. it's, it's fading in and out tonight. We'll, we'll get there. We'll get there. But. Yeah, you're going to be one step ahead of the game because the whole concept of experts and bureaucracy and all of that is uh, something that Frank Herbert in his Dune series, and we're not going to talk plot here, we're just going to talk ideas, talks about a lot, particularly the the, the way in which experts um, and a, a bureaucratic class inevitably lead to certain tendencies, lead to corruption, lead to being parasitic on themselves and on larger society. I'm going to argue here over the next few minutes before we get back to lost civilizations that experts are exactly like what Frank Herbert is describing with larger bureaucracy. You know, why am I going to spend time doing that? Because I think it's important. It's important to understand, you know, why is somebody who is not a quote unquote expert, Graham Hancock, uh, who is an investigative journalist, why should we even listen to him, let alone believe him as opposed to the expert class of archaeologists? So, I'm going to I'm going to and I want to start this by saying that I think that the expert experts in this world occupy a, a strange place. There's a paradox when it comes to experts, which is on the one hand, we very much need them. You know, we're sitting here on a, a Tuesday yesterday. So many people witnessed this this horrific NFL injury. Uh, the player collapses on the field and he's given CPR, rushed to the hospital. It's like without experts, he's dead. Okay, so that's just one very blatant example. We can point to them again and again and again and again and say experts are valuable to to human uh, flourishing, to human survival, to human advancement. But there's another side to it in that the experts, you know, if we if we just stop there and say they're valuable, so just listen to them. Which, boy, does that refrain sound familiar from the last few years? Just listen to them. Like, no, there's more to the situation than that. So what's going on when it comes to experts? Well, I'm going to suggest that there's a few things going on, a few things we need we need to ask. So the first one is this whole that, – that we need to understand the nature of an expert is to go deep but not wide. This is something I experienced and felt myself bristling against a bit when I was doing some of my graduate work uh, in theology. The farther you go in terms of your academic study, the narrower your field of knowledge becomes, okay? And it's, it's almost inevitable. This is part of why it's a paradox because a lot of this stuff, it isn't people being bad or wrong, but it's like there's – it's it's the nature of the game but there's a danger here so the further you go the more you become an expert the odds are with precious few exceptions the more narrow your field of vision is going to become so our first danger of experts is what i like to think of as the blind man at the elephant syndrome like everybody's heard that joke the three blind men with the elephant like what is it well you know the one's touching its tail another one's got the trunk and they all have different versions of what it is because your perspective is ultra ultra narrow so it's and the the problem with this 
is that the more you narrow your perspective, the more you are guaranteed to undervalue the conclusions and evidence of other parts of the elephant, related fields of study, things that other people might see because they're looking somewhere else. So you're essentially putting blinders on when you become an expert. The second thing that is going on is a sense of orthodoxy. Now, when it comes to religion, I'm a big fan of orthodoxy, which means that there is, when it comes to Christian orthodoxy, we believe there is such a thing as revealed truth. You know, so there's a revealed truth about who God is, you know, what the church teaches, all of that. So somebody comes along with a new idea, well, that new idea had better be able to prove that it's in line with orthodoxy or it needs to be rejected. That's what heresy is. You know, new ideas can emerge, and this is, I'd cite, uh, oh, what's his name? Uh, Newman, Cardinal Newman's uh, essay on the development of Christian doctrine as a, a wonderful resource to understand how this works together. New ideas can emerge, but they need to be in line with what the church teaches. When it comes to expertise, though, we find the same orthodoxy exists, but it shouldn't, meaning that there is a set of accepted values, and they are, because this is human nature, everything Frank Herbert teaches us about the way humans work, especially in bureaucratic institutions, they are defended with the same fervor as they do if they're considered divine revelation. Well, what's the problem with that? Well, the problem with that is that... that in theory, any scientific area of expertise ought to welcome new views. It was a high bar for them, but welcome them. In practice, nobody, outside of, again, a very few precious and rare individuals, welcomes their life work being overturned. You know, so the paradox of science, like a paradox within a paradox, is that uh, you... you are, on the one hand, supposed to be operating in such a way where, yes, you have a high bar, but the thing you can't wait for is for everything you know to get get overturned. On the other hand, humans don't work that way at all. Nobody works that way. Not literally nobody, but, but a lot of people. This then leads way to bureaucracy. I, you know, I've used that term a lot in regards to experts, and people might be thinking, well, wait a second, when it comes to the sciences, academia, there isn't a massive bureaucracy. It's more decentralized. Well, not exactly. You want success conformed to the narrative. Otherwise, you're not going to get published. You're not going to get hired. You're not going to get promoted. You're not going to get speaking engagements. You're not going to get all of that. How do you get that? You conform to orthodoxy. Okay. Uh, there's also a problem here of, uh, and, and I'm going to use this term a lot tonight, midwittery. So people, again, on the Patreon feed are familiar oh, yeah. with the concept of the midwit. Uh, the midwit. So what's the midwit? The midwit, and you're going to be an expert on midwits by the end of tonight. <laughs> midwit problem is this, is you are smart enough to see the error in low-level thinking, but you haven't gone far enough. You get stuck on it. You know, so experts tend to devalue non-expert, non-expert opinion. Okay. Which makes sense. I earned this. I got here. I, I did the work. What happens when the non-expert sees something the expert misses? That's the midwit trap. That's the midwit trap. You just, you, you, you 
emerged from the great unwashed masses, and now there's nothing of value down there. That's the midwit trap. We're going to see that again. We'll come back to that idea when we start talking about myth in a little bit. And there's hubris involved. So many examples of this. You want more specific midwit examples over on the extra feed? We're going to premiere the midwit of the month. It's going to be a great oh. feature. Uh, I, I've got at least two of them planned, and we'll see if I get sick of it after that. Yeah. The midwit of the month you coming told me, soon. Yeah, you told me there's a new extra new feature. New monthly extra feature. And now, now I know. Yeah, okay, mid, mid, midwit monthly. So we may be recording this tonight, depending we'll, on We'll time. see how time goes. So expertise then by its nature, or more accurately, by human nature, is a prime breeding ground for midwittery. It's like you're almost guaranteed to fall into the midwit trap. Okay? Next, then, you're immune to accountability. Experts know more. So who can keep experts accountable? Other experts. And you start to see the circular logic here. There's orthodoxy, there's bureaucracy. Okay, so you have, this is the paradox. We need experts, when you start to look at it, there's all this problem here. So how then do we evaluate uh, experts as non-experts? When we start talking about maybe there was a lost civilization and all the experts say, no, there wasn't. How do we evaluate what somebody like Graham Hancock has to say? I, I want to suggest that there's two areas we can at least consider in addition to maybe a third overarching one, that we can look for evidence of things like bureaucracy, like midwittery, and at least raise an eyebrow where we see it. Okay, Maybe we can't always evaluate it perfectly, but we can at least raise that eyebrow. So the first one is, how conclusive is the evidence? Okay, That can have a wide range of answers depending on the discipline we're talking about. So let's take something fun like the flat earth, which I don't actually believe in the flat earth, even though I like to pretend to every now and then. (laughs) It would make me very happy if it was true, but it's, it's sadly not. Well, our evidence is very conclusive. We went to space, photographed the earth. It's not flat. And this is why flat earth is a conspiracy theory. You know, like Graham Hancock's not a conspiracy theory. He's not saying there's a conspiracy Uh, But to believe in the flat earth, you have to believe there is an active multi-governmental conspiracy to suppress our imagery from space. You have to believe that. You You have to actually say that the evidence isn't real because the evidence is that conclusive. Okay. When we start talking about things like archaeology, we're talking about reconstruction, history, reconstruction of the past. That is less definitive than it is than there is empirical evidence so what you know how do we evaluate that well you know if we're talking about reconstruction of the recent past maybe we can be a little bit more confident though i think if anything the internet has taught us that uh, just because there's video audio whatever we're not at all confident reconstruction of the recent past but at least let's take the high level you know we can we can be clear that uh, john f kennedy was president and he was assassinated even if we're not in agreement on who did it right so we can nobody disputes there was a president named i shouldn't say nobody Sure, somebody does, but there was a president named John Fitzgerald Kennedy who uh, who was president from 1961 to 1963 when he was assassinated. We, you can be sure of that. Technically, that's a reconstruction of the past, but our evidence is that good. Okay, we start to go back 500 years. Well, our evidence is good. Like we have written sources, we have actual sources, but it's it's not as good as you know John F. Kennedy being president. Mm-hmm. You know, go back. A thousand years, go back 
2,000 years. Okay, what's our, you know, think of how controversial even something like who was the historical Jesus was. Like historians, even non-Christian historians, are in agreement that there was a person called Jesus. And But, it, you know, we don't have video of him driving around. Not that he would be driving. I think I got stuck on the Kennedy stuff, but uh, what's but, the uh, what's that one historian that always gets quoted? Is, it's not Josephus, is it? Yeah, Josephus. Okay. Yeah. yeah. He. I feel like people really rely on him because he was not a Christian historian. Yes. But he still yeah. gave information that backed up. Yeah. No. Nobody except a few really but, precious midwits uh, doubt the the uh, existence of a historical Jesus. Yeah. Well, I guess what I want to say though is we kind of are banking a lot on. Like early Christian writing and Josephus, <laughs> and, and that's why we believe in some of these things. But that's actually a perfect example of what I'm talking about. When we talk yeah. about historical reconstruction, mm-hmm. that's what we're talking about. Like, all of a sudden, the further back you go, the more you realize, wait a second, you know, I I have video of John Kennedy as president. Yeah. I have really solid documents talking about Napoleon Bonaparte. Uh, and then I got... Copies of copies. Copies of copies and Josephus for Jesus. Now, again, Jesus may be a bad example because that's, of course, articles of faith as well. But in terms of history, it it holds up. So now you start to unwind that clock 5,000 years. Start talking about the pyramids. Start talking about the Egyptians. Well, through no fault of archaeologists, but their reconstruction is a lot shakier. The quality of the evidence, how conclusive is the evidence? It's not as conclusive. In fact, I'd say every most archaeologists would, even though they wouldn't agree with Graham Hancock necessarily, would say, yeah, there's things we're wrong about because you're reconstructing, you're establishing a theory. And that comes to the second one then. What anomalies are there? So let's make a really important distinction right off the top. When we talk about anomalies in any type of expert theory, any type of reconstruction, we we don't get to throw out the theory just because there are anomalies. There are always going to be anomalies. No theory is going to perfectly account for all of the data in a perfectly conclusive matter. Okay? So the presence of anomalies in and of themselves doesn't indicate that there's a problem. The question becomes... How you know, how many anomalies? Where are they cropping up? And maybe most importantly, compared to what? You know, what's the alternative? Is there another reconstruction that better explains some of these anomalies than what we see here? So all of that to say, experts, we need them, but the very nature of expertise tells you that they're full of crap. We just don't know where. I guess what I hear what I hear you saying is that experts are important, but not the end all be all. And yeah. even if they are well educated, with 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 many things, you can only be educated to a certain point. And yes. It's not even their fault that they don't know. It just is what it is. Yeah. Well, and it might. So the most generous interpretation yeah. is it's not their fault. Well, the, the less generous interpretation, which we know exists, mm-hmm. hubris, arrogance gatekeeping all of those exist but i guess as you're talking about looking way back yeah there are some things that no one could know yes we just are hoping for the best we hope that we know what we're talking about absolutely so yeah the the experts we need them but like where so many people get off that train is there it's like well that's that's a midwit trap right you've come far enough to understand that some people know more than you great 
Well, what happens when those people are corrupt? What happens when they're wrong? You know, what do you do then? So in light of that, let's talk about lost civilizations. What evidence is there? How do we evaluate some of those anomalies? So the first thing that we come across then is looking at these massive megalithic structures, you know, the Great Pyramids being a prime example. Um, we have, again, structures like that uh, all over the world, all over the world. And there's a problem with them. And the problem is this. We don't know how they were built. Now, that's a natural reaction when you're looking at, say, you know, a great European cathedral or Michelangelo's Pieta. It's like, I, how did anybody ever do that? that? That's not what I'm talking about, though, that kind of odd reaction. I, I can't believe that, that humans without modern technology constructed Notre Dame. Like, that's astonishing. But that's, that's not what I'm talking about. Like, we don't know how they did this. You look at the pyramids and the theories, and, and not just the pyramids. I'm going to kind of use that as shorthand for all of these megalithic structures. They, they defy explanation for humans at the technological level that these civilizations were at. Or that we believe they were at. Or that we believe that they were at. You're talking about, uh, it's not just, well, you know, the, the tons of stone and everything. No, you're talking about like individual stones, which is what you know, these megalithic stones can weigh like 200 tons. And like there's theories about how were the pyramids built. And you can dig into this and say, well, maybe they used ramps. No, like the ramps could not for the technology they had. They would have collapsed under the weight of the stones that were being carried up. Like, I think we have this image of, of you know, just a bunch of happy Egyptians or not so happy Egyptians with a, a cart wheeling these stones up. You have no idea how big these stones are. Okay. So uh, this is where we start to see, I think, one of the major problems with the expertise expert view on this. There's something like circular logic that comes on, goes around with this. And that, uh, we know that the ancient Egyptians, even though we don't know how, we know that they built these structures because these structures exist. Okay? So, yes, we might not know how, but the fact that they exist tells us that the ancient Egyptians, others, but we'll focus on the pyramids, built them. Well, comes the challenge. Couldn't an earlier civilization have built them? No, there wasn't an earlier civilization. Well, how do you know that? Doesn't you know? Wouldn't, wouldn't this maybe imply that there could have been? No, because there's no evidence for an earlier civilization. Well, what about the pyramids? No, that's not evidence for an earlier civilization because the ancient Egyptians built them. Well, how'd they build them? We don't know, but they built them because they, you start going around and around in circles, and that's essentially what the logic looks mm -hmm. like. Now, that is an, that's again to go back to anomalies. An anomaly doesn't mean you throw out the whole theory. But this is a big one. This is a really big one. But there's more. There's more. We start talking about what was the purpose of these structures. Actually, I want to come back to that one in just a second. Um, you know, so the, so the, the whole idea of these structures then is they're built about 5,000 years ago. And this remained pretty much unchallenged for all of the structures that we knew existed until about the last 10 years, 
when a location, a structure in Turkey, Gobekli Tepe, was discovered. Gobekli Tepe, everybody agrees, is about 10,000 years old. Way older than, you know, we're talking thousands of years before when the claim is that these other structures existed. Okay, so Gobekli Tepe, um, G-O-B-E-K-L-I-T-E-P-I, two words, um, is way, way older. The other thing about it is that it was deliberately buried. Now, how people know that versus just being accidentally buried, I don't know. But when when both uh, my kooky sources and my mainline sources agree on something, I just take it for granted. <laughs> so that's probably my own midwit trap, but that as it may. Okay, so Gobekli Tepe significantly blows up this narrative because now you're having to it, it really starts to strain credulity even more because now you're not even saying well this ancient civilization that had developed for a few thousand years in the agricultural period had a way to build these structures we don't know what it is but they certainly had time to get there did you say what that is i i looked it up myself but did you actually say what gobekli tepe tepe is so gobekli tepe is a it's a temple um, in Turkey. In Turkey. And you know the purpose of it is a, a little bit controversial, which we'll get to in just a second. But uh, there's uh, – we'll come back to that. Okay. But yeah, why, why don't you – you've got something well, no, else. No, no. I, I just wanted to make sure the, that the listeners had something to at least visualize yeah, as we're talking about it. So for all of these, you can think of like not literally the pyramid, though pyramids occur a lot, uh, a lot, um, but megalithic structures. So okay. – Huge structures, huge, you know, that defy our expectations for what we would expect one of those cultures to build. It does say this is the oldest known megalith. Yep. Yep. And so now you're talking about uh, a culture that is allegedly just at the dawn of architecture, or or not architecture, of agriculture, if not still a hunter-gatherer being able to build, construct, and then deliberately bury incredibly complex megalithic structure and anytime you hear that term megalith you think you're talking enormous enormous stones stones that just defy your ability to comprehend how they would be put in place so go back if the pyramids strain credulity gobekli tepe breaks it brings it to the breaking point says maybe there was something else going on okay then we start asking ourselves what was the purpose of all of these This is where things start to get a little bit interesting because, again, going back to Blind Man and the Elephant, that's one of the flaws we can look for, right? So Blind Man and the Elephant would say, if there's something going on with the conventional understanding, there's probably evidence from other disciplines that might be able to shed some light on it. And indeed, we find that. We find that with a lot of these sites. So one of the most interesting sites, and Graham Hancock spends an episode on this one in Ancient Apocalypse, which I highly recommend. Really? Highly recommend. You should watch it. Okay. Everybody should watch it. Uh, is that on the island of Malta, there's a series of megalithic temples. And all of these temples, they were built over a period of a couple thousand years, and they're all pointed at slightly different angles. Okay? So why? Well, that's a mystery. We don't know. Except, except if you use technology to unwind the night sky, you know, so you unwind the night sky for what it would have looked like about 11,000 years ago, 
you find that these temples perfectly match. I forget the, I think it was, uh, I'm not going to speculate on what star it was, but one of those big stars out there that would have caught the eyes of the ancient people. These temples were tracking it. So they build one, and then over time, Mm -hmm. that star would drift. They build another one to, to continue to track it. So these slightly angled temples line up with that perfectly. Could that be a coincidence? Yes. But we see the same type of thing over and over and over again at these sites. As long as we're accepting coincidences, let's take this one. And I don't have the math on this. Graham Hancock does it beautifully in his book, but I'm too dumb when it comes to math to even try and reproduce it. So you have to take my word for it or do your own research on it. The sides of the Great Pyramids, the four sides of the Great Pyramid, proportionally correspond to the dimensions of the Earth. Okay. Wow. And to within a shockingly accurate degree. That kind of reminds me of what we talked about last week. Yes. Yeah. Like somebody has a message they're trying to send to us. Well, we'll get there. And, and this one's maybe a bit more plausible than, than last week. Okay. So you, you have that as a coincidence. Um, and one of the things about that that's very strange and I'm probably, I might be getting the details slightly wrong here, but in order to do that, you have to be able to calculate the circumference of the earth, something that, according to our understanding of history, wasn't done until thousands of years later. You know, I think it was the, the Greeks did that. So a couple thousand years later, you, you're able to do that. And my dates might be wrong. That's my fault. That's not Graham Hancock's fault. He's got a whole book out there you can read. Okay, so you just get the... The, the regurgitation. Yeah, these are the cliff notes. These are the cliff notes. Well, we're in Egypt then. Let's talk about the Sphinx. And by the way, as I was reading his book, man, we could do a whole kooky Christmas just on Egypt. Like, like four weeks oh, on Egypt? Yeah, like, and some of the theories would be fun and probable and some of them would just be wacky and it'd be great. Maybe, maybe. Um, so let's, let's talk about the Sphinx a little bit. It could be like Egypt in July, Christmas <laughs> in July. Uh, we could work on that one. Yeah. Uh, one of the features of Egypt uh, that I don't know if you knew about is it's a desert. Yes, I was familiar. Very dry. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting then that the Sphinx shows signs of water erosion. Hmm. Water erosion. And, you know, say, well, couldn't it have been wind erosion? No. Like, you can go on the internet. There's all sorts of crazy differences between wind erosion and water erosion. Again, my my nutties, and I say that affectionately, my, my nutty sources and my quote-unquote legit expert sources all agree on that. So, uh, you know, they, the experts do dispute the some of the causes of water erosion on the Sphinx, but I have not come across a more compelling explanation than that it's rain. It's rain. And you have to unwind the clock a long, long, long way to get back to where there was rain in Egypt. Another interesting thing about water in Egypt. Are you saying it currently does not rain in Egypt? Not enough to cause water erosion. Okay. So you're talking minimal amounts of rain in the desert. So you have to go back a long way to where there would be enough. That's a good distinction. It's not that there's zero rain, but that there's enough to cause that water erosion. Okay. Okay. There's also, in the pyramids and in other places in Egypt, we've found very large boats. Boats much larger than what you would need for the Nile. You know, ocean-going boats. Plying that, 
If you put this together, you can make a case that at one time there was a civilization that lived there that was seafaring. Well, if you look at Egypt on a map, that doesn't make a lot of sense right where it is, you know, in the desert. Okay. Another thing about the Sphinx, everybody's familiar with the Sphinx, body of a lion, head of a pharaoh. Well, if you've ever looked at it, the head is disproportionately smaller than the rest of the body, implying that there's a good chance it was recarved. Meaning that oh. the Sphinx likely had an original head and that it was recarved later on to meet the likeness of the pharaoh. That again suggests you have a structure much, much, much older than what we think of as ancient civilization, ancient Egypt. Ancient Egypt shows up and they recarve the head into. Uh, That's cool. Exactly that. Yeah. That's very cool. Or how about the fact that the. Uh, the Great Pyramids, the three pyramids there, correspond to Orion's belt, implying again this astronomical knowledge that we wouldn't have expected them to have. So this is a lot of what Graham Hancock mm -hmm. is, uh, is, is compiling, anomalies, things that at least ought to make you say there needs to be a more compelling explanation for this. And where I want to go with this next then is to look at, to, 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 to go to even a more interesting level that I'm interested in. The level of myth, okay? You say, well, what does myth have to do with anything? Well, that's a very midwit response. We'll get to that in a second. One of the things that's, that's interesting when we look at myth across the world is that we would expect cultures that touch each other, meaning they're in contact with each other, either through a common source, okay, or through contact, contemporary or near contemporary contact, we're going to see overlap with their myths. And indeed they do. We've talked about some of this with Genesis. Like, you know, why does, why is God the creator of the sun and the moon and the stars? Well, because those were gods of other myths, you know, ancient Near Eastern myths. And so part of what's going on in Genesis 1 is it's a polemic against these other ancient Near Eastern creation myths saying, our God is above your God. Our God made your God. Okay, so that's an example of, of myths in contact with each other. What's interesting, though, is when you start to see parallels among cultures where there shouldn't be any contact, no common ancestor that we know, nothing like that. And what happens when you start to see shockingly similar parallels? So the ancient Aztecs, they have a myth that goes like this. Once upon a time, there was a giant worldwide flood. You say, oh, that sounds familiar. Hang on, we'll get there. Just just put Genesis away for, for a few more minutes. We're almost there. Okay. Once upon a time, there was a worldwide flood. Destroyed almost all of civilization. There were a few scattered survivors around. Eventually, a giant from over the water named Quetzalcoatl came. He and his followers helped reboot civilization, meaning that they... They gave people laws. They told them not to be cannibals and helped them to construct these giant Aztec pyramids that we see, these megalithic structures. I think, well, that's a nice story. You know, what about when we go to the Incas a little further south, Central America? Same story. Worldwide cataclysm, flood, giants, again, giants being critical here come from over the waters, help rebuild civilization, help them build megalithic structures. 
Well, that's a little odd, but Aztecs, Incas, they're, they're pretty close together geographically. Maybe there could have been some contact. What about the Egyptians? Same myth. Same myth. The god Osiris shows up after a worldwide cataclysm. Is he portrayed as giant? Uh, yes. Well, giant or gods. I'll, I'll explain my emphasis on giants when we get to Genesis. So many of you are probably ahead of me there. Uh, you know, shows up, civilizes the people, helps reboot civilization, leaves. The Philippines, same myth. Same myth. Giant worldwide flood. Very few survivors. People show up, help reboot civilization. It's the same myth over and over and over and over again. Okay, it could be a coincidence. But, and this is like blinders on, you know, it's just myth. All we care about is archaeology. No, like maybe there's something here. Maybe that's something here. Now let's talk about myth. It does make me actually think we're Christians here, but whether you're Christian or not, now, let me say it a different way. If you're not a Christian, you're looking at the Bible as another ancient myth. We also have the same myth story. We do. Or a version of it. We'll talk about that in just yeah. a second. Let's talk about myth a little bit. And I'm going to get, I've talked about myth a lot in the past. Okay. So, uh, and, and I'm going to walk you through kind of very briefly recapping what I've said in the past. And then I'm going to give you a new perspective on it. Okay. So the, the, the ultimate midwit take on myth is, that's what those dumb people believe because they didn't know any better. They didn't have science like us, right? You know, so why did the, the, the Norse believe in Thor? Because they heard thunder and thought it must be a god. Boy, those dumb people. Aren't we lucky we have science? You know, that's like the dumbest take you could ever have on myth. If, if you have that opinion, uh, please give it up right now because it's the dumbest thing you believe. I'm sorry to say to inform you of that, but that is the dumbest thing that you believe. Okay, so and and that's that's like how modernism has viewed myth for hundreds of years. You know, this is not an uncommon opinion. It is it is prime midwittery. So if we're to play this out with midwit, uh, the midwit uh, meme is that on the one end of the spectrum we have the dumb position. Oh, oh, thunder must be a god. Hoo, hoo, hoo. The midwit position is boy, those dumb people. Thank God we have science and don't need that anymore. The the smart position then is well, wait a second. In these myths, there is deep deep, deep truth about what it means to be human, about human psychology, about all of that. And that's really been my position that I've propounded on this this show. I've said again and again and again, myth is not synonymous with untrue. It is a way of expressing truth in a narrative form. I believe that, believe very strongly. So the way this is looked when it comes to Genesis, we've talked about how Genesis is, you know, Genesis 1 is not trying to give you a historical account scientific account it's trying to teach you god you know the truth about who god is and his relationship with creation the example i just gave is a great example of that other cultures are worshiping the sun and the stars and the moon genesis says no god is above them it's a theological tract not a scientific or historical one okay that's better that's better it's not best We'll say not even best because uh, there, there might be additional. In fact, there are additional layers of myth we haven't encountered yet. But I want to peel back another layer and say if that kind of science history, hard sciences, hard disciplines over here, myth over here, both important, but they, they don't have anything to say to each other. 
You know, that's kind of where I, I the position I propounded, more or less. I want to say I don't, I'm no longer convinced that the walls between them are quite so big. What does that mean? The way you understand history goes something like this. And by you, I don't mean just you, poor you. Matt, but all of us. goes something like this. History is the reconstruction of what you would see if you went back in time. You know, you, you had your camera and you filmed it. That's what history should be. You know, it should be a documentary reconstruction. So, you know, and science is synonymous with the scientific method. And what I want to argue is that that's not the only way of understanding history. That's not the only way of understanding science. In the case of history, which is where I'll focus more, we, under, we need to have a broader view of history than just documentary. They're not the same. History is telling us what happened in the past. Okay, And if that in your mind is synonymous with documentary, which is hard to get over because that's our cultural frame, you need to realize a couple of things. Number one, that view didn't exist until very recently in the past. Okay, What's the upshot of that? Well, it means that up until the modern era, the view you have of history synonymous with documentary effectively didn't exist. Okay. Now, it doesn't mean people didn't care about what really happened, but it does mean they didn't care about it in the sense that the view of what really happened involved what you would watch if you could send a video camera back in time. Okay? That's a view that's a product of the modernist era. It has a lot of value to it, not throwing it out. But if you say, that's the same as history, you're just wrong. It's not even a debate. You're actually factually wrong, because that's not how humans have viewed history for most of time. Second thing, you'll never understand myth. Okay? So myth isn't just a way of expressing truth, be it theological truth, beliefs about, you know, like Carl Jung has done a lot, did a lot of stuff on myth around, um, you know, what does myth tell us about our psyche and all of that. So we know there's really, there's deep truths in myth, but there's also deep historical truths in myth. Okay? Um, I, I, I started this year, uh, you know, because Pope Benedict XVI died on, on New Year's Eve. And so I, on New Year's Eve, I was like, man, it's been a long time since I've read anything from Pope Benedict. So I, I want to read something by him. And I found this short book of his, which was a series of homilies he'd given in the 80s on the topic of creation. Uh, and it was just great because it was like exactly what we're talking about. So he, he has this quote in here. He says, ultimately, every people has known this. The creation accounts of all civilizations point to the fact that the universe exists for worship and for the glorification of God. This cultural unity with respect to deepest human questions is something very precious. In my conversations with African and Asian bishops, particularly at Episcopal synods, it becomes clear to me time and time again, often in striking ways, how there is in the great traditions of the peoples a oneness of the deepest level with biblical faith. In these traditions, there is preserved a primordial human knowledge. That's the key part. It's like it's not just a way of expressing psychological ideas, a primordial human knowledge that is open to Christ. The danger that confronts us today in our technological civilization is that we have cut ourselves off from this primordial knowledge, which serves as a guidepost, which links the great cultures, and that is increasing, and that an increasing scientific know-how is preventing us from being aware of the fact of creation. 
far be it for me to put uh, words in a much smarter and greater man than in the mouth of a smarter and greater man than I. But Pope Benedict is saying that the scientific view is a midwit trap. Okay, like you get to that point, you say, we don't need that anymore. You've cut yourself off. I love the way he puts that from this primordial knowledge that unites humankind. Okay, so when we talk about these shared myths, yes, they're talking about truth on a deep level. How they, you know, how do you understand yourselves as a culture and a people? That's embodied in there. It's an anthropological question. But is there also a historical question? It sure seems like it. We'll get there in just a second. Let's talk about Genesis first. Okay, so you mentioned it. You, you hit on it exactly. Like, in Genesis, we kind of have our own version of this narrative. Mm-hmm. So I want to actually suggest that in this section of Genesis that we've spent so much time on, Genesis 1 through 11, I want to actually argue that there are four apocalyptic myths present. Okay? Noah and the Flood is one of them. Let's just get that out of the okay. way. Okay, but that that kind of line up to these world myths that we're seeing. The first one going chronologically through the book is actually creation. What do I mean by that? Well, what does God create? Well, he creates the world, but he hovers over the waters of the deep. It's a really curious thing in, in ancient myth, how often water is the beginning point of creation. Hmm. Okay, well, there could be reasons for that. There could be non-scientific, non-historical reasons for that. Of course, water's very important, you know. But if there was some type of worldwide apocalypse that resulted in a worldwide flood, you say, well, you haven't covered any evidence for that. Hang on. We'll get there. Just, just hang on. Wouldn't, wouldn't it be surprising, that the, wouldn't it be unsurprising that the myths that emerged from that time would focus on water? It's the beginning point of life. Second thing we know about Genesis, one in the creation myth, and again, I'm not using myth as I'm using it as a technical term, uh, is that it's talking about functional creation, creation of pre-existing matter. Okay, so in the creation story in Genesis one, God creates the world out of water, out of pre-existing matter that is formless and without void much as the world might have seemed after a worldwide apocalypse. Okay, so that's number one. The second one is the fall. You have a pristine world. People are kicked out of it. And they're kicked out of it in part by a serpent. Put a pin in that one. We'll come back to it. Okay, serpents are going to show up again before this episode is over. Paradise Lost. Third one's the flood. Fourth one, the Tower of Babel. What's interesting about the Tower of Babel? It's a megalithic structure. Humans are building a megalithic structure. And in their hubris, God casts them down from it. Oh, by the way, in all of these flood myths, it's the hubris of mankind that angers God and brings on destruction. So again, this is part of where your understanding of history has to change. If history is documentary, this doesn't make sense. Because wait a second, well, which one comes first? But if your understanding of history is a way of expressing in narrative what happened to us, then it would make sense that we would see the same uh, or similar apocalyptic myths, perhaps referring to the same event. And I'm not making that claim. I'm just suggesting that as a possibility in the Genesis narrative. Second thing 
Does Genesis speak of a lost civilization? Yes, it does, actually, in a number of ways. Number one, Adam is formed outside of the garden and put there. Okay, he's some minor point. It's not where I put my whole case, but there you have it. Well, what does that what does that mean to you? Couldn't he? Just, what does it matter that he was outside? There's of the a garden? world outside of the garden. But don't we already know that that God made this world? Yes, but the implication is that there is an ordered area in the garden and there is a less ordered area out there. It, 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 there's a distinction being made. Again, let's build upon it. Yeah, it doesn't I, stand alone. I, yeah, I would almost say there's a holy area and an area separated from God. So what's in that area separated from God? Well, we actually find that out when Cain is sent away. What happens when Cain is sent away? But he was sent away after they left the garden. Yes, but hang on. I, I know what you're. I know where you're going. He, he's sent away, and there's people all over the place. Well, it doesn't say all over the place, but he says what, what enough if people find there me. Are, no, no, no. He actually goes to a city. Yeah. In Genesis, when Cain leaves, he goes and lives in a city, an established civilization with other people. Okay. Number three. Genesis makes a huge distinction between these giant lifespans of people before and after the apocalypse. You know, a civilization before and a civilization after. Yeah, I think Genesis 6 distinction. says that they're not going to live as long. Exactly. There is a distinction. Something has changed with this apocalypse. Number four, maybe most intriguing, the Nephilim. A Nephilim. Because, boy, when I see all of these other civilizations having myths talking about giants— what does that make me think of? Makes me think of the Nephilim. We have our own giants in our myth. We do. It's like, so what I'm saying, again, is not airtight evidence. That's yeah. what's going on in Genesis. But if you look to Genesis, is there something there where you could see the same events being recorded? If there was something that happened to this planet, A, wouldn't we expect it to be recorded in the Bible as people who not themselves literally, but their civilization emerged through it, lived through it, merged out of it. Yes. So if this existed, if this happened, we would expect to see it in Genesis. And if it's there, we can see it there. The evidence is there. It's, is it conclusive? Of course not. Of course not. You know, uh, and it's reconstruction again, right? It's the same game. Same reconstruction game. What I'm saying is not, this is what happened. This is what Genesis is saying. What I'm saying is, it's not insane to look at it and see it there. One other important point. All these other myths, we have this giant, this God restarting civilization. Who restarts civilization in Genesis? It's God. It's actually kind of incredible because what's cool about this is that one of the things people makes people very nervous when you start comparing Genesis to other ancient myths is like, oh, no, oh, I don't want to look at that because then Genesis might not seem so special. One of the cool things back when I was studying Genesis 1 is that it's the opposite that's true. The similarities put them in conversation with each other, and they actually highlight the theological truth. Same thing here right? Who restarts creation? Not a human who comes from over the sea. God. You know, God has his relationship with Adam and Eve. God continues that covenant with Adam's descendants through Seth. You know, the Noahic covenant at the flood. And then most importantly is after the Tower of Babel, what happens the next page? 
Abraham, Abrahamic covenants. Like the same pattern exists, but in a way that emphasizes biblical truth. It's incredible. It's incredible. You know, so don't be afraid of that type of uh, type of comparison. One more thing from Pope Benedict before we leave this section. And it became to be understood that this God of Israel was not a God like the other gods, but that he was the God who held sway over every land and people. He could do this, however, because he himself had created everything in heaven and on earth. It was in exile and in the seeming defeat of Israel that there occurred an opening to the awareness of the God who holds every people and all of history in his hands, who holds everything because he is the creator of everything and the source of all powers. Pope Benedict saying that, that it is... It is Israel as it's in captivity in this powerless state, reflecting back on its history, reflecting back on its myth, and that's where you start to get things like the Tower of Babel, which is what he's talking about specifically there. The Tower of Babel, by the way, if you've ever noticed the similarity between Babel and Babylon, they're actually the same word in mm-hmm. Hebrew. You know, So what is the Tower of Babel? Well, A, it's a megalithic structure, but it's also a megalithic structure that, that corresponds to the megalithic structures of ancient Babylonia. You know, so that is a narrative that comes out of the exile experience. Are you saying there's a, a portion or something of the Tower of Babel could exist the in Babylon? The Babylon? ziggurats of Babylon. Babylon. Like, mm. That is the Tower of Babel, right? So what do you have? You're, um, you're saying a fact? You, that's no, what you I'm believe? saying in the myth, that's what, it's, that's what the reference is. Like, imagine if instead of the Tower of Babel, it was called the Tower of Babylon. Mm. You'd say, well, where are there towers in Babylon? Well, the ziggurats. That's the only thing it can be referring okay. to. You know, so if in my alternate reading I'm giving here, which I think is there's a strong case for, if part of what we're doing is continuing to reprocess this ancient apocalypse, but we're reprocessing it in light of our current experiences, Israel in exile now reprocesses it in light of the Babylonian captivity. You know, so they the apocalypse is transferred from flood onto Babylon. You know how in the past we've had the argument of what is myth and what is history, I'll put in yeah. quotes because of the conversation we're having in the Old Testament. And there's the are I mean, some people think everything is is exactly what it is. It, how you read the Bible is what actually happened. Right. Some people think Genesis one is more of a mythic telling of creation, but then Genesis two starts history. Yeah. Some people, and I think you think chapters 1 through 11 are all more myth-based and that Abraham is the first historical character in the Bible. Is that so so far am I am I, I think that's what I've I've said before today. Okay. So so I got yeah, I guess I want to ask in light of what you're saying, what do you make of those positions now? Well, I think that the second position of history first and second position don't exist. Meaning that it's what both those positions are doing is taking our documentary approach and understanding of history and applying it onto an ancient text. So when I say they don't exist, I don't mean there aren't people who hold to them. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it's a logical error. It is a, it's a, a, a thought error. What I'm saying then, it would be my previous position would have been myth in the sense of non-historical myth mm-hmm. and then what we might call historical myth begins in genesis 12 with abraham okay but, by which and by but histor- that's what you've always said right yes that's that's been my position okay. up until now what i'm saying now is that no the line between history and myth in genesis 1 through 11 is much more blurred than i previously have given it credit for 
So what does that mean to you? How are you view- Give me an example of something you're seeing differently. I think that, well, as we get to the rest of this episode, I think there, there was an ancient apocalypse that the flood narrative comes from. I think it's referring to historical events. Okay, so previously, as an example, you didn't necessarily think Noah has to be a real person. Correct. And now you think there probably was some Noah-like character. Yes. Yeah, I think that they, at the very least, there was a... Uh, uh, it's referring to an, a, a historical event. I'll just leave it at that. I don't want to get into specifics of saying, was there somebody named Noah or not? That's Because that's, again, like what I'm trying to avoid is, where does the documentary begin? Because that's kind of what you're asking. So now critique my, my right. That, that would be my critique. But, well, I, I guess so. I'll, I'll just set it here for anybody who doesn't know. After a lot of study that you and I have done over the years, uh, we came to different conclusions, but had some similarities. For example, Genesis one, because of, for me personally, because of the differences, there's a cre- there's a creation account in Genesis one and a separate creation account in Genesis two. So I've been on board with saying we don't have to necessarily believe in a seven day creation because Genesis one could be more explaining what God did in the world, not necessarily literally, but ultimately pointed to the fact that he was making himself the God of us and this earth. Right, right. And then I would always say in the past, Genesis 2 starts with a historical Adam and historical Eve. And because, because it traces like in the genealogy of Jesus, we go all the way back. So I've, I've felt like, well, that's pretty legit. That has to be history, like real people. And we disagreed on that. Yeah. So I think, I'm saying it's all history, so I'm saying that Genesis 1 is history as well, but not documentary history. I think that's where I think you're making a mistake. Your view still makes a mistake in that what you're thinking, what you're calling history, you cannot apply to an ancient text, which does not mean that there isn't a historical Adam and Eve. So I know you've talked so much about this tonight, and I still don't know if I totally understand okay so let, let's let's put it this actually can we put a pin come in back? It? Yeah, let's, let's come, come back. back to it because it'll make a little bit more sense when we talk about this next part where we're our wrapping up i know it's a very long episode no, it's a great episode okay so graham hancock writes this book fingerprints of the gods in 1993 and you know it's all sorts of controversial and everything one of the main criticisms that's thrown at it is okay you want to believe in this ancient apocalypse, as you put it, because that would be also be his reason for why don't we have more evidence of these civilizations? Well, the ancient apocalypse wiped out the evidence. Where's the evidence? Doesn't exist. So you're wrong. Until about 15 years ago, when a theory, the Younger Dryas impact hypothesis begins to emerge. And at first, I'll explain what that theory is in just a second. At first, the theory is met with derision, but it's actually become more and more and more mainstream and is now, if not completely accepted, widely accepted among my non-kooky friends, the quote-unquote experts of, of the podcast. So what's the Younger Dryas Impact Hypothesis? Well, it goes like this. We know that the last Ice Age ended about 12,000 years ago. And we know that it ended actually very, very rapidly. The Younger Dry's impact hypothesis uh, posits that the reason it ended is that the Earth went through, as it does twice every year, passes through the torrid meteor stream. 
And within the Torrid Meteor stream, we got hit by fragments of a comet or asteroid. You know, so think of like Armageddon, except not stupid. You know, like just site after site after site. What did that result in? Well, it resulted in, and, and, and the specifics of it, I'm not smart enough with geology to explain, so I'm going to refer back to Ancient Apocalypse again, as well as Randall Carlson, who has been on Joe Rogan a lot. Very, very interesting guy. And he explains this all in great detail. Massive worldwide flash flood. And we know that there was massive, massive climate change where the, the climate in various parts of the Earth changed from hot to cold or cold to hot in a matter of days. And this is not kooky. This is widely accepted at that point. One of the things that happened at that point is sea levels rose hundreds of feet. You know, so sea levels at the height of the end of the last ice age were about 400 feet lower than they are today. So you had sea levels vastly rise at this time. So, and this is all across North America, across Europe, across the areas that we're talking about. And of course, worldwide when it comes to sea levels. If you were a person living through this, you would interpret that as a global flood. There's no other way to interpret it. If there had been a civilization, even one as advanced as ours, it very likely would not have survived that. It very likely would have been wiped out. And what we mean by not survived is not 100% you know, dead, but it's an apocalyptic moment. A civilization's gone. So if you're looking for your smoking gun, which is what people were challenging Graham Hancock on for years and years and years, it showed up with the Younger Dryas Impact Hypothesis. We were hit by a variety of comets that caused a worldwide flood, and not a slow one, slow melting of icebergs or anything like that. No, we're talking about a Genesis-type flood. When, say, call it 40 days and 40 nights, the world flooded before the waters began to subside. Crazy. It's crazy. Uh, what's out there with that? Okay. You're saying that they believe the flood lasted for 40 days, which lines up with the Bible? I, I'm saying 40 days. Okay. They, they're not going to give, and nor should they, give that level of mm -hmm. precision to it. But we're talking a matter of weeks or months. Okay. So a short period of time, right? And this is, again, that documentary difference. Like, yeah. To, if the, so, which we'll get to in just a second. One other thing I promised we'd come back to, two other things we'd Serpents. come back to. Serpents. How did the ancient world interpret comets in the sky? As serpents. Really? Yes. Yes. Crazy. So we go back to our ancient myths, or our apocalypse narrative in Genesis, one with a megalith, two, one for sure a flood, one we can squint a little bit and we can see a flood there. The other one caused by a serpent. It's wild. It's wild. Wow. The other thing, and I promised we'd come back to this and then I'll answer the Genesis question. You can question. say that for the end. Well, no. We're, we're, I'm, I guess because what I specifically want to know is the history thing. But we'll, Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll get to that in just a second. But the other tease, going back to the title of this episode, is Atlantis. Yes, finally. Yeah, I just want to tell you, we're, I mean, my time quote is going to be a little bit different than the listeners, but we're one hour and nine minutes into this oh, episode. Sorry. And here comes it. No, that this, this here Atlantis. comes that. Here comes Atlantis. Here comes this, Atlantis. Is, this is what the listeners asked for. That's true. <laughs> so where does the Atlantis myth come from? It comes from Plato. Plato says that Atlantis disappeared 9,000 years ago. 
as he's writing, which is 11,000 years ago, which is exactly, exactly when the Younger Dryas impact hypothesis occurred. So is it also exactly before Adam and Eve came on the scene? I don't know how to answer that question. And I literally mean that. Mm -hmm. It would have been before they came onto the scene. Yeah. So, yeah. Yes. So, but exactly before. I I want to. I I want to come back to. Okay. Let me let me finish on Atlantis first. Okay. So, if Atlantis existed, it would have. You could you could understand. Let me put it this way: you could understand Atlantis in a number of ways. Number one, there could have been a literal Atlantis. Number two, it could be a stand-in for cities, civilizations, cultures that existed at a lower sea level. I mean, think of everything in America that's under 400 feet below sea level. We're not, thank God. You know, we'll be fine when this happens again. But Miami's toast, you know, for sure. Like, New York's probably toast. You have massive cities, massive areas of civilization. They're just gone. They're underwater. And there's good evidence for this. So on Malta, one of the things he covers in Ancient Apocalypse was... Uh, one of the questions is, okay, you not only have these giant temples, but how'd they do this, especially on a tiny little island? It's not a big island. One possible answer, it didn't used to be an island. And indeed, there are ruts that appear to be from ancient roads. And what do they do? They go right into the sea. You know, right into the sea, implying a time when it wasn't the sea. We have evidence of this again and again. Some of it controversial, some of it much more compelling. The Binami Road off of the the Bahamas appears to have evidence of man-made structures under the water. You can evaluate the evidence yourself and come to whatever conclusion you want. Last thing here before we get to the history question would be, okay, you mentioned it towards the beginning. Was somebody trying to send us a message? Very possibly, yes. Because one of the other features of all of these ancient civilizations, and maybe the Aztecs of 2012 are the most prominent example, is that they seem to be looking forward to something. Well, we could go really, you know, tinfoil hat and say they're they're magic aliens prophecy, but we don't have to do that. Okay? Because, well, here's what we know. We know these ancient cultures who built these monoliths, built these temples, built these astronomical observatories, knew a lot about the stars. Okay, that's just undisputable. They, they knew a ton about the stars. The Younger Dryas Impact Hypothesis came when we were in the Torrid Meteor Stream, which again we passed through twice a year. Okay, but we are actually in the same portion of the Torrid Meteor Stream right now, for about the next century, as they were 12,000 years ago. So if we are in nature's shooting gallery, we pass through it twice a year, but we might be in the most dangerous portion of the cosmos. And oh, by the way, in addition to the younger Dryas, there's evidence and compelling evidence to say these massive cataclysmic comet strikes, you know, civilization enders happen about every 10 to 15,000 years. We're due. We are due. It has been 12,000 years, and here you are. So 
Yeah, Matt, let's just play this out a little bit. Imagine that these things can end civilization. You know, and maybe by advanced, you, uh, I'm leaving that ambiguous for what advanced means. Advanced enough to build the pyramids. You know, we could get really kooky and say that they were just like us, but I'm not saying that, nor is Graham Hancock, nor is anybody else. Okay. So, well, some other people are, but that's not the point here. So, advanced in that sense. You could actually imagine in the 300,000 years Homo sapiens have existed that this cycle could have repeated itself multiple times. About 10,000 years. Is that what it takes for a civilization to truly become advanced just long enough to get to be lined up for the next civilization ender, the next Armageddon? It actually reminds me of the Tower of Babel story. It does, doesn't it? Right when you get to some sort of height of technology, God says, it's gone too far. Right. You know, all this has happened before, all this has happened again. It's like it's a common refrain in in human myth-making as well. And there's the uh, myth about the sixth extinction, right? Yep. Is it six or are we up to the seventh now? I don't know. So it but could, yeah, it's like, or, you know, even things like the new heaven and the new earth, which is, I'm not saying that. I think those are theological truths, mm-hmm. but you could, you could interpret things like that as saying, there's going to come another time. Your time's going to come. And then there'll need to be a new heaven and a new earth. Cause we're talking about an event that radically reshapes this planet, mm-hmm. like just radically. And, and potentially you're saying, this has happened at least once and maybe multiple times. Yes. You know how they always talk about... Nobody but me is saying multiple times, by the way. <laughs> uh, they always talk about we're finding new sea life because we're, we, yeah. when we get deeper into the ocean, we find things we've never seen before. What if the deeper we go into this, all this unexplored area underneath the water, what if we find structures? It's, it's entirely possible. So are you saying, are you p- potentially for this kooky Christmas episode saying... Whatever Atlantis is, whether it was the world before or a specific country, it existed roughly right before Adam and Eve. I, I don't know what you mean by roughly. I right mean, before. I guess, fine, I'll just say before. Yes. Okay. And yes. then they had their apocalypse. Yes. And then when God started over? Starts over with Adam and Eve. Adam it and takes Eve. Adam is created out of the garden and placed there. Okay. What, what do you make of the theory? Some people think that we follow Adam and Eve's story because... They're in the genealogy of Jesus, but God could have created lots of humans, and that's just so. Well, I, I mean, I think unless you're a young Earth creationist or a variant thereof, you believe that Homo sapiens existed apart from Adam and Eve. So, I let's let, let me that, say let me say a couple of things about this, okay? Because I there's two things I don't want to get conflated. Uh, the first one is how do we understand myth interpretation? The second one is articles of faith, okay? So, as an article of faith, I believe in original sin as a historical event, okay? And I say, well, how does that make sense with anything you just said? I don't know, but I believe in original sin as a historical event. I believe in Adam and Eve as the historical participants in that event. Those are articles of faith, that is completely separate from how do we, you know, how do we interpret an ancient document, which is the larger question when it comes to history. Okay, here's what I mean by that: there are things about Genesis that are articles of faith, meaning that as an Orthodox Christian, 
low o, lowercase o, uh, as a belief in the historical tenets of Christianity, as are expressed in the Catholic Church. There are, are articles of faith that I will accept no matter what else we understand about the text. Okay, one of those is the historic reality of original sin. Okay. Beyond that, there isn't a ton that the Articles of Faith demand we interpret this thing this way, okay? Now, we have to interpret it as true, inspired by God, as but there's a lot of room there for interpretation, meaning that, and I've talked about this before with Catholic doctrine, there's not the view, there's boundaries. So one of the boundaries should be, uh, you know, original sin affirm the the existence of that the historical existence of that another thing would be you have to affirm god created the heaven and the earth yes mm-hmm. done you know easy right you have to affirm that scripture is true we can't just say well you know that genesis thing's a little awkward so chuck that mm-hmm. no that's part of sacred scripture okay so within those boundaries then that's where i want to answer the question of what do i think is history and how do i understand that yeah, so I, I want to find out more about the this distinction you're saying about the viewing history like a documentary. But before yeah. you go there, I, I want to ask one more clarifying question about Atlantis. <laughs> so I think I hear you saying God created Adam, but there were potentially survivors from the previous apocalypse. Yeah. Yeah. So, so it did wipe out the earth. Yes. But there's always some people that make it through. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. 100%. So when Adam's referred to as the first man, the first man of this new version of Earth? Well, and I'd, I'd actually go even further than that. Um, Jesus is the last man. Doesn't mean he's the last man in the way you're thinking of. Mm-hmm. You know, So I don't understand why. So it's we, just symbolic? No, it's not, it's not symbolic. Because symbolic implies uh, symbol only. I'm saying it's teleological. You know, on a deep and profound spiritual level, Adam is the first man. On a deep and profound spiritual level, and it, it's even robbing it to call it spiritual because that almost sounds Gnostic, and that's not how I mean it. Jesus is the last man, but that doesn't mean chronologically that no one was born after the year zero, and it doesn't mean no one was born before Adam. Mm-hmm. Okay, this is interesting. Yeah. So last thing, and then we should close out for the night. What I got hung up on and what I don't think I was fully understanding as I'm trying to figure out, well, as, you know, you've laid this all out. Does this make me readjust anything I've believed? So you say I'm viewing history like a documentary, and I think I'm not quite understanding yeah, so wh- let, how let you'd rather I see history. Let me explain that distinction. Okay. Okay, so when you think about you know, the history of George Washington. Let's, but let's talk about Adam. Yeah, we'll, okay. we'll get there in just okay. a second. Um uh, we we understand, say, American history, like the Kennedy thing, of what you would see, the history of John F. Kennedy, what you would see if you went back in time with Time Machine and, and were able to videotape it, right? That's what history is. In other words, that's why I call it documentary. It's what the camera would capture, the visuals, sounds, all of that. My argument is that is not what Genesis or any other ancient historical recording is attempting to do exodus no so nothing in the bible but, is, but hang on uh, hang on hang on i'm not getting mad i'm just wondering what no, you're but, trying but, to say but, but, so let me let me genesis is a great example okay because i believe 
that Genesis is referring to a historical event when it talks about the flood, right? Like that's what I just laid out. Yeah. I actually think it's referring to it so much it's referring to it four separate times. Creation, the fall, the flood, and Tower of Babel. Part of my argument, and I'm not going to die on that hill, mm-hmm. but let's just play with that thought experiment for a second. All four of those in the narrative are chronologically one after the other. So from a documentary perspective, that doesn't make any sense. Mm-hmm. Okay? you know, But my contention is they are historical recordings. They are recording history, but not as a documentary would film it. They're trying to tell you about the apocalypse in four different ways? Yeah. Yeah, they are four different expressions of a historical event. Okay. But you can't look at them and say, well, which one's the real history? Because what, and I'm not saying you're saying that, but what was behind that question is, which is the one I would see if I went back in time with a time machine? That's the wrong question, because that's not what the documentary is doing. Okay, so let's flash forward a little bit to the Exodus. Okay. How do we understand that? Does it mean that that it's just a metaphor? No. The Exodus is referring to a historical event. Moses was a historical person. I don't think that's even a controversial statement. You know, God giving his law to his people was a historical event. The conquest of Canaan was a historical event. What are we seeing in the book of Exodus? You know, if you went back with your time machine, would it be word for word what's recorded in the book of Exodus? No. How close would it be? To me, that's where I say that's the wrong question. I don't know. What I do believe is it's A, a historical event, and B, the authors of the book of Exodus, be they Moses, the most humble man who ever lived, or whoever else, uh, you know, the, the redactors, all of that, they were not trying to accomplish the question you're asking, which is what would happen if I went back with a video camera. Mm-hmm. So when we talk about God inspiring scripture, what he inspired was not that. Was it historical? Yes. Was it documentary? No. Are you just saying the Bible gives us a, a rough idea of what was well, happening? But see, rough idea, I think, is still, I'd still challenge that. I'm being very pedantic here. And the reason is we to, to get this, you have to break out of that documentary. Okay, so let's talk frame. about the 10 plagues. <laughs> let's move to a different topic. But it's but, the same thing for everything. But I, I know, I'm just, maybe you can explain it a different way. So that, what is that, that you're saying that but story didn't necessarily happen? It wasn't necessarily that. The question it, you're asking, what really happened? Yeah. That's not the question the book is asking. So then asking. what is important if what happened isn't important? The, the, from a historic, so a lot is in, important, obviously, we could answer theologically, but let's stick with historically. Yeah. What's histor- What's happened, what's important historically is that these events happened. And this is the human expression of history. But I, this is where I think I'm not understanding you. You're saying you're you're saying that my question is wrong because I'm asking what's happened. Yes. What really happened? And you're saying it's not important. It's just that this did happen. Yeah. So it's I, say, but I, I think it's probably easiest to see with the flood, right? Okay. What's important, like from a historical perspective, is that there was this apocalyptic event. Okay. But saying, well, so does that mean you believe in Noah and the boat? That's like the wrong question. Because that's not the point. The point isn't Noah and the boat. The point is this historical apocalypse. Uh, 
I think I'm starting to understand what you say you're saying, and I don't know if I'm there yet. To, I, I don't know if I can get me on board with that. But I'm glad well, that you've got this new thing to think about. It's a it's a radical, like, and this is what's so pernicious about modernism, because that view that you can't get past is not a quote unquote biblical view. It is a modernist understanding of history that the rest of human history doesn't share. You know how we always talk about how Jesus and the, the disciples were reading the Old Testament? Yeah. So how did how would you guess, based on what you're saying here tonight, how would you guess that Jesus or the, the disciples, if you don't want it to be God, viewed things like the Exodus story, the Ten Plagues, the Flood? Like, the, Well, I don't think we have to guess because we, we can see how those things are referenced in places like the Book of Romans. You know, Paul takes historical narrative and he just reinvents it. Like this is actually a big problem for uh, systematic theologians because they look at how the New Testament uses scripture. And like, holy crap, we can't do that. Like, like that, that's what, not a valid way of interpreting. I don't think I can think of an example. What 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 are you thinking of when you think of Paul? messing with just pick one example oh so like when he talks about how there was a rock and that rock was christ it's like paul will just look back at an event Mm -hmm. and say that was christ Mm -hmm. like what where do you get that you know it's like it would be what we you know almost what we call eisegesis and then the typical shortcut is god inspired that don't you do it which i agree with well what do you do with genealogies why are genealogies so important from a documentary perspective i guess i'm just saying they well, took but, the time to put them in there, seeming to imply yeah, that you no. can believe all of this because this person and this person was before them and before them. And so they go all the way back to Adam. It seems to imply, I mean, everybody agrees genealogies are boring to read through, but they do add some good historical value. They're meant to say that, like in the case of the, the genealogies in the Gospels, that they're tying Christ to David. They're tying him to Adam as yeah. the first. It's a theological point. You know, but it, I think I hear you saying maybe the genealogies aren't even right. Yeah. Because not maybe from the, the way you mean. Because maybe those people in the genealogies weren't actually real people. Not in the way that you mean, which is the problem. You're trying to approach this with this this frame of reference that is a modernist historical understanding. I think we might be on two different two different places in this debate. I'm wondering if I'm totally lost or if other if listeners are hearing this and 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 some people are like also not understanding you, well, or if I'm, I'm okay like with totally lost. lost on what you're saying. I'm okay with if people are lost. What I'm saying though is like I don't because s- I don't know what I'm doing wrong with my questions, and you seem to be thinking I'm doing a lot wrong. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I mean, what you're like the the problem? With the, it's not the question, but it's that it's what's behind the question, which is let's get to the bottom of what really happened. Okay, I don't think. That the uh, his an and forget the Bible for just a second. Ancient history doesn't care in the way you care. Okay. So let's can we use a yeah. non-biblical example? Yeah, that's a good idea. A battle of Thermopylae. Okay. Three hundred Spartans. Yeah. Historical event? Sure. What really happened? Well, we told you what happened. It's here in this narrative. Yeah, yeah, but that's clearly and because we could take God out of it. Yeah. He's not inspiring it. I mean, clearly, like. You know, th- that's not exactly what happened. Sure it is. That's what we wrote in the history. Okay, so it's not a historical event at all? No, it is. Like, you, can you see how, like, we use an example like that? You can go around and around and around because, yes, Battle of Thermopylae, historical event. 
all the history about it outside of affirming its historicity does not care one bit about the documentary quality of what it's writing. So do you think that I'm taking the Bible too literally because God is involved? Yeah. And and maybe if this was just a regular old book that we were reading because we like old books, we'd be like, well, obviously that wasn't exactly what happened. Yeah. Yes. So that's it does make it hard. To, it's hard for me to not take it more seriously because God is involved. But, but no, here's you have to change your definition of literal. Literal means taking it as it's intended to be read, as it was written. Okay, so Battle of Thermopylae, like, or, or any of these other historical, like, there's a history meme out there where it's like, you know, modern history. We don't know exactly, blah, 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 but it was approximately this. Ancient history, there were precisely 10,962 troops, and here is the word-for-word speech the general gave 400 years ago. It's like, you know, obviously not, but yet that's my argument is not, well, it's not real history. It's like, no, no, no. What you're calling real history is not what they're doing. They are doing history, but not in the way you would define it. So in a way, I'm for, I'll take it one at a time. Old Testament, New Testament. So let's start with the Old Testament, pre-Jesus. In a way, I think you're saying it's possible, and maybe you think definitely likely, nothing that we read in there as story maybe actually happened in the way that it's presented. In, yeah, like, I mean, I think it's all historical events. Like that, 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 like that's. I don't know what you mean by that. No, well, like it's historical, but it didn't happen the way that happened. Yeah, so I'm just thinking, uh, for some Battle reason, of Thermopylae. I think it's historical. I don't think our ancient Greek sources describing the battle are describing what I'd see if I went back with a time machine. For some reason, Esther is coming to mind. Yeah, a common story. I don't think we have to rehash it. So you're saying probably there was a woman who became queen named Esther, but probably that story maybe wasn't exactly like. What we read in the I Bible. Mean, do you think that story's word for word what you'd hear if you went back in time? No, I, I'm not, I don't necessarily think word for word, but I do think. So that, where do you get off? But I, I guess I think general, the general beats of the story really happened, but maybe they don't have the exact words that they that her and Mordecai privately spoke to each other. Okay, so so that I can work with. There's a spectrum here, right? There's a level of ambiguity. Yeah. You've already accepted a level of ambiguity. Okay. Okay. What you're reading in Esther, historical, yes. Documentary, no. Right. Because, That's what you just described. Because and what, just to clarify, I would say probably the story, I think there was a t- uh, time in that story where Mordecai and Esther are talking privately. And yeah. no one knows exactly what they said, but I'm sure they told the story of what they said. So we're not seeing necessarily exactly what they said. We're seeing the story that's been told about them. Okay. So we're, we're but, on the same page so far, right? Well, because you're still kind of stuck on this documentary view. Right. I don't know if I am. I think that's why we've been talking for another thirty extra minutes. We, we should probably stop this episode. We're way, way, way far from kooky Christmas. But when you say like, well, the way we got to the story in the Bible is that Mordecai and Esther told other people what they said, and then they yeah, wrote yeah. it down. Like, why? Why do? Why is it necessary to go there? I don't, I think I do want to feel like it's real. Why? Okay, that's that's the point. Why is it only real if it's a documentary? Well, I, I'm not using those words. Those are your words. I say, I'm saying it's real Why to me it if it happened. Why is it only real if, it, if, if that conversation literally happened? I don't need the words to be literally. But you need the, back, the conversation. I need, there to have, I need this to have actually happened. 
So if, like, like the beats of the story should be real. Okay, let me put it this way. If Mordecai and Esther didn't ever have that conversation. And, she, and he never said, who knows if says such a yes. time as this. If that never happened. Yeah. But there was still a historical event. Why is that a problem? I think I'm, I've just been trained to believe the Bible. Yeah, you know who trained you? Modernists. <laughs> yes. Oh, I don't know if this conversation's over, but we probably should end up for tonight. Yeah. I think we need... I, I'm worried that I'm the only one that's confused, so listeners, please write us about this one. I, we don't always ask for feedback, but in this case... Do write us at feedback. No, at, somebody else be confused. I don't want you to feel bad. Please. I don't want you to feel bad. Even if you it's understood, a, pretend that you did it. Just help me out here. It's okay to it's okay to be confused. Because maybe other people's questions. I feel like you and I are going in circles. I think we might need somebody else to chime into this conversation to yeah, yeah. help clear clear some things up. But I, overall, great episode. I know. Yeah, we, yeah. I don't think I totally understood parts of it. That's okay. Specifically the history, like what you want me to see differently. Uh, but man. That stuff at the just, beginning. Just throw away your mental video camera. That's okay. all. Throw it away. This episode, though, it was worth being the finale. It's another kooky Christmas it, in the books. It was great. So you've got something planned for Kooky Cupid. Yep. I've already asked you for a separate one. I don't know when we'll maybe uh, Kooky St. Patrick's Day. <laughs> <laughs> what what <laughs> other holidays? We'll, we'll are hit up? all the holidays. Oh, my birthday. Uh, but great Kooky Christmas season, Ben. So thank, thank you. you. I think it was our best one yet. It was, and uh, I think that's all from here. I'm Ben Anderson. I'm Ben Devoto. We're the Sapphire Christians signing off. Goodbye. <laughs>